This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 23, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Securities and Exchange Commission recently changed its definition of accredited investor. But why is there a legal distinction for people who have special access to investments in the first place? Why do some people have access to those investments that you and I do not? Jennifer Shelp directs financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. We talked about how rules governing who can invest in what changes the playing field. Help me understand how an individual who wants to own a chunk of equity in uh, either a local business versus, say, uh, a chunk of equity in Alcoa or Microsoft or Google. Well, there's different types of markets. And when we tend to think about owning equity um, in the U.S., we tend to think about buying equity off of the NYSE or NASDAQ. And those are publicly listed companies that are subject to all of the restraints that the SEC puts out on those companies. But in fact, publicly listed companies um, don't make up the largest chunk of capital raised in this country. In fact, in 2018, the public markets raised $1.4 trillion, but the private markets raised $2.9 trillion in 2018. And we don't tend to think about investing in the private markets um, when we think about investing. Um, and one of the reasons that we don't tend to think about it is most regular folks can't invest in the private markets. Um, depending on the offering, uh, private market investments are limited to what we call accredited investors. And that is an individual who makes at least $200,000 a year or $300,000 a year with their spouse or has a net worth excluding their residents of over a million dollars. And typically, traditionally, unless you met that standard, you were not allowed to invest in most private offerings. Um, private offerings range from, you said, local restaurant, local business, um, to biotech startups, to hedge funds and private equity funds, um, a wide variety of companies that are not listed to be sold in the public markets. Um, and most investors are shut out of making those types of investments. What is the assumption that uh, regulators uh, make when they decide that this is the standard? The assumption, uh, this standard's been in place since 1982 um, and has really changed very little until recently. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, this, the assumption that was made here is that folks that have high incomes or high net worth are sophisticated enough to understand private market offerings and are able to absorb the risk of loss that comes from investing in private market offerings. Um, why this is important as an assumption is that private market offerings generally don't provide the same sort of disclosure or the same type of vetting that, that things available on the public markets NYSE, NASDAQ do. So private offerings are viewed as riskier. Um, and they probably are riskier writ large. But the assumption that those that are more wealthy are more sophisticated is a poor one. Um, 
And I think that's that's borne out over time, um, particularly as the $200,000 kind of income cap or income floor here hasn't increased since 1982. Um, a much larger swath of people have gotten kind of swept up in the standard definition than was originally intended. And a fair number of retirees, um, people sitting on large nest eggs meet these requirements. And there's nothing that they did to become any more financially sophisticated um, other than amass wealth over the, the course of their lifetime. I mean, the assumption that I read into it is that because you have a lot of money, you're good with money. Or because you earn a lot of money, you're good with money, which is not, not necessarily true. I think that's a fair read. Um, I think the SEC would say that they're being a little bit more nuanced than that in creating the, the standard, but, but I don't think it plays out. Um, really, what happens here is that those who are already wealthy get access to investment opportunities to make them more wealthy. Um, this is particularly important because over the past 20 years or so, the amount of time that it's taken for a company to go public has increased dramatically. Um, now it takes about, on average, 11 years for a company to go public. It used to be the companies went public after four or five years. And the important thing there is that companies usually hit a point where they stop growing quickly. And that point now happens before the company becomes a public company. So the investment opportunities, if you're relying on investing in already public companies, um, that are listed on the NYSE, on NASDAQ, are less good investment opportunities um, than they would be if you were able to get into a high growth phase for something like um, Facebook before it went public or Spotify before it went public. Um, these types of companies tend to continue to grow faster before they're public now. How much blame can we lay uh at the feet of the SEC for companies deciding to go public later um, because they may have had a harder time raising capital from small investors who otherwise would have been interested, but because of SEC rules were prevented from uh, doing that kind of investment? Um, I think we can lay a lot of blame at the, at the SEC's foot for companies waiting to go public. Um, longer. I'm not sure that it's necessarily tied here to the accredited investor standard, but um, because companies are finding lots of capital in the private markets. As I said, private markets raise uh, almost twice as much as the public markets raised for in 2018, which is the last year I have data for. Um, there's a lot of private equity money in the private markets. Um, companies are able to find money. But what I think is important here is that the accredited investor standard is actually, it hurts smaller companies and it hurts investors who don't meet the standard because it has some disproportionate impacts on um, minorities and those that don't live in coastal high-income cities where it really decreases the investor pool for small businesses um, in their local communities. Um, say I open a, a small business in a small Midwestern city. Um, there's not a lot of people in small Midwestern cities that have a million dollars in net worth or make $200,000 a year. Uh, and that's my local network. 
so I have a much harder time raising capital from the people that I know and the people that know the people that I know. And it, it has a tendency to dampen down um, small businesses that aren't already um, kind of the darlings that, that venture capital or angel investors are having their eyes on in coastal cities or people with big moneyed networks already. I think that that problem is compounded because individual investors that can't make these investments don't have access to the same wealth building opportunities that um, those who are already wealthy do. Um, it's, it's a real problem um, from a practical standpoint beyond the question of um, the government making decisions for people here about how they should be able to invest, which is a problem in and of itself. But there's real practical consequences here as well. So this essentially means that people who don't have a lot of uh, don't have high net worth, don't earn a huge amount of money, are effectively shut out of certain investments. I completely shut out. Yes. And but that seems to exist in tension with the notion that we definitely want quote unquote better investors to be the ones who are. Uh, pouring over documents, uh, understanding the risks that they are taking when they uh, buy equity in uh, smaller or even larger private firms. Um, how do you resolve those? You know, the SEC has started moving a very small amount in the direction to helping to resolve that. Um, the SEC passed an amendment to the accredited investor definition um, that will go into effect in December that opens up investment in these offerings to people that hold certain securities licenses. And the important thing here is not the particular securities licenses, but it represents a shift in the SEC's thinking about how to draw these lines um, from a simple wealth test, which is over-inclusive and under-inclusive at getting at financial sophistication to actually trying to understand the investor's sophistication. They're looking at people who look at investments for a living and understand how to read financial statements, understand risks and um, pros about investments. Um, that's a very small step in the right direction. Uh, I would resolve this by putting a lot more trust in investors to make their own decisions. Um, it is undoubtedly the case that um, private investments have less disclosure than public investments. Um, that's one reason why the investments stay private is because they don't want to go through the public disclosure regime. But that doesn't mean that investors are without recourse and that investors can't understand what it is they're investing in. Um, I think it's important for us to have some sort of regime where investors understand that they're not getting all of the same information that they would be getting if they were investing in Exxon or um, now Facebook or Google. Um, but but people can make those types of decisions for themselves and should be allowed to do so. Um, so some sort of regime where we're clear with people that they're not getting the same information and they understand that. I think will go a long way to helping people make ordered decisions about their own investments rather than the government making that decision for them. Is there a public education component here? <laughs> <laughs> because it, it strikes me that a lot of investors uh, 
small investors, there are going to be people who would like to engage in these kinds of investments who uh, maybe just by virtue of the fact that they're not really carefully looking at the documents they are, uh, are signing that uh, they could get ripped off uh, and in a perfectly legal way. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a public education component here. And I think that there's the possibility to look towards other regimes that the SEC has set up in the kind of non-public market space. Um, one of those is the, the crowdfunding regime, which um, allows investors who are not accredited investors to invest in small startup companies. Um, right now, that regime allows people to make small investments, but there's there's some mandated disclosure to investors about the fact that these companies are small, that they're not providing the same type of information that you would be getting. That type of mandated disclosure uh, might work with a larger um, private equity, hedge fund, private company type of disclosure uh, investment opportunity um, where the investor is told, look, you're investing here in a class B company, which means I don't have to give you audited financials. Um, I don't have to do monthly report or quarterly reports to you. Um, there might be risks in investing that way. Um, but I think educating investors so that they can make their own decisions, be that through mandated disclosure or through a public investment, a public investor education campaign is is the way to go here because we we um, empower people to make their own decisions rather than the government drawing bright line rules that that keep people out of investments that they may very well be sophisticated enough to understand and have every right to make that decision for themselves. Are there implications for what we're experiencing right now? We've seen massive business failures uh, that will likely continue. Um, I, I think in lieu of a lot of uh, companies that are especially smaller firms that are struggling in lieu of borrowing money, taking out uh, big loans at either the bank or trying to take advantage of federal programs could instead be seeking uh, out small investors for equity interests? I think there's definite implications. Um, private companies have a lot of different motivations for the types of investors that they're seeking. Um, it depends on the stage that they're at. It depends on what type of investor involvement they're looking for. So removing the accredited investor definition wouldn't necessarily entice all private companies to start looking to go look for small dollar investors to invest in them. But what it do would do is open the door to that possibility. Um, and I think importantly, open that door to that possibility for smaller companies that are unable to work their networks now in that way because their networks are not wealthy or their networks do not have access to the same wealth. What are the implications here more broadly, not just during a, a pandemic, but for uh, the notion that uh, communities uh, could be, individuals within communities could be investing in their uh, the assets of a community, that is, the, the privately held firms that would like to stay, uh, if not entirely local, regional? Yeah, I think the implications there are huge, both from a, a company side and from an investor side. Again, 
removing this type of blanket um, bright line standard would would permit people to invest in the businesses that they know, and be that a regional decision or otherwise. Um, for example, right now, if I have a PhD in certain biosciences and I'm interested in investing in a biotech company um, that I, I believe in their product and I, I support their research, I'm unable to do so unless I am a financial advisor or make $200,000 a year. Uh, it doesn't allow people to allocate their capital to causes that they believe in. And it doesn't allow companies to look for those types of investors who believe in their cause um, because they're limited by that investor's wealth. And that's, that's not a good way to make these decisions, um, either for investors or for companies. We've talked about this before, but there's a crowdfunding aspect here, too, isn't there? Well, crowdfunding is done under a separate, uh, a separate exemption to the Securities Act registration. Um, the problem with the word crowdfunding is we, we tend to use it to describe a lot of things. Um, okay. We, we tend to use it to describe small investments in an entity, regardless of whether it's done pursuant to the SEC's crowdfunding rule or not. Um, what I'm talking about is the SEC's crowdfunding rule, which is a specific set of requirements allowing small companies to seek out small investors. As it stands right now, the accredited investor rule doesn't play any role in crowdfunding. Um, you don't have to be wealthy to engage in a crowdfunded, to invest in a crowdfunded company. Um, but there are limits on how much you're allowed to invest um, that are tied to your income. Um, so if you make a certain amount of money, you you can invest $1,500 a year in crowdfunded companies, for example. The SEC has proposed to inject the accredited investor definition into crowdfunding um, by basically removing the investment limitations for accredited investors, saying if you're already wealthy, you can invest as much as you want in crowdfunded offerings. Um, I, I object to putting the accredited investor standard into anything else because it's such a poorly designed standard. Um, and I think it also kind of hurts the concept of crowdfunding to say if you're you're rich, you you can put as much money in there and you can essentially drown out the smaller investors who were drawn to crowdfunding in the first place because it was full of smaller investors. I think crowdfunding is an interesting, and I think a mechanism that has great potential. Uh, the way the SEC has set it up at the moment, uh, it's a little bit limited um, because companies really have access to limited capital through through crowdfunding, and the requirements of the rule still impose a, a decent amount of costs on these smaller companies. Um, there's there's ongoing reporting requirements and other things that don't exist for these private offerings that I was talking about before that are limited to accredited investors. Jennifer Schulp directs financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>